Well, once again, good morning. My name is Mark, and it's a joy to be with you as we worship and glorify our God together this day. And it has been, as Doug mentioned, it's been certainly been a, a week of uncertainties, and, and some of that continues on, but I think it's really good that we can see each other today and, and retreat unto the Lord and His Word today to be encouraged and, and to be sustained for whatever may lie before us. But now we'll turn to God's Word. If you would uh, join with me, if you want to turn in your Bible or your device or just watch on the screen, um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16 and verses 9 through 20 today. This is the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's our 46th sermon. I'm sure y'all were keeping track of that, 46th sermon on the Gospel of Mark as we wrap it up. So if you would listen now for God's word to us today, Mark writes, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and for their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on the sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out, and they preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day and this time to retreat unto you, to come into your house, to find sanctuary and rest in your word and in your worship. I pray now that, Father, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight and would bring you joy for indeed you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we conclude our work together in Mark's gospel, we come today to what is known as the longer ending of Mark's gospel, right? And we, we spoke just briefly about that last week. And that just means if you have a, an English Bible, for example, the NIV or the ESV, there may be some others, the one in our pew, the NIV, um, has this note 
and it sort of brackets off these verses and says something like this. It says the earliest manuscripts or some of the earliest manuscripts did not contain these verses, verses 9 through 20 of Mark chapter 16. If you're reading, if the, if the English Bible you use is the King James Version or one of those variants, that note may not be in there. It just goes on to these verses. And it kind of presents an issue that I, I think is worth talking just a little bit about today, the issue of textual transmission or textual criticism. Now, let me be clear. The translators, those who put the note in there and those who did not put the note in there, they believe the Bible, right? They believe the Bible is the Word of God, that it is inerrant in its original autographs, that it is inspired. And so the question about these verses. It's not, a, it's not a question about whether one group of translators liked these verses or, or maybe one group of translators didn't agree with the content of these verses and so put that note there. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Just like these translators, we believe that the original autograph of Mark was inspired by God, that it was without error, same with all of the books of the Bible. However, we don't have the original autographs of these books and and of Mark. What we do have today, however, is we have some 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. And these were manuscripts copied by scribes or, or copyists, and certainly the providence of God overshadowed the work of these scribes. But These manuscripts, they're not all exactly identical, right? Now, having said that, they are in incredible agreement with one another, um, although they are not, you know, exactly 100% the same. So don't begin to think, do not begin to think that, oh no, my Bible is just a patchwork of, of guesses of what should be there or what shouldn't be there, right? That is not the case at all. But they're variants, within these 6,000 manuscripts. There are, there are variants. If you read your Bible regularly, you know this because you'll come across little notes here or there in your Bible that do identify that, that something is a variant within some of the, the, the manuscripts. And so there'll be a little note about that. And most of these variants don't bother us at all because they're, they're very minor. It might be a word uh, or you know, just very, something very, very small. Mark... 16, 9 through 20 gets our attention, however, because it's 12 verses. So it, it's, a, it's a very long or large variant, if you will. And there's only one other variant in all of the New Testament that's, that's sizable like this, and that's in John's gospel in chapter 7 and 8. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. So these are the two longest variants within the, the manuscripts of the New Testament. And most of the variants are are just very small things, things that you might would expect if someone is copying a text that there might be some minor mistakes along the way. So copyists, you know, we're, we're like you and me. Scribes or copies are like you and me. They're fallible people. They're human beings, right? And um, so they, they made little mistakes. They weren't intentional mistakes or they weren't um, ill-intended, but they were just just things we might make a mistake on if we were copying something. And 
if you think, maybe for an example, if you think about if you've ever sent on your phone a long text to someone, right? Anybody ever sent a long text on your phone, right? And then you, you push send and it sends the text and then you go back and look at what you just sent and there's a bunch of misspelled words or words that you didn't even mean to be in there. The autocorrect slipped something in that you didn't intend or, or you know, you had the punctuation was all wrong or, you know, you started to write something and then you went to correct it and then you sort of lost your place and it's a little confusing. Like, we do this. We do this all the time, right? So you can kind of understand how how there could be some misspellings or some missed words here or there. And in the first and second century, it may come as a surprise, but there were no Xerox machines at that time. And there were no copy machines. And so anything that was copied was copied by hand. And so that's very, you know, it's, it's an arduous task to, um, to, to copy so much by, by hand. And in these New Testament manuscripts, we find things like misspelled words. We find things like skipped lines or maybe lines that were um, repeated inadvertently. Or we might see things like this, like uh, a copyist may be very familiar with one of the gospel accounts. For example, a copyist might be very familiar with Matthew's, with, with Matthew's account, and then he's copying Mark's account. And because he's very familiar with Matthew's, when he gets to similar parts in Mark's, he may kind of, without thinking about it, put in some details for Matthew, and then those get copied on in additional, additional copies of the work. Or, for example, a scribe might make notes in the margin of his work, and the, the marginal notes are not really meant to be conveyed on as part of the text, but then a, you know, a subsequent scribe might inadvertently include those marginal notes, and then the next scribe would know that they had been marginal notes, and so they would be included along, and it becomes a variant within the manuscripts, and, and we, this is noted by scholars of these manuscripts. They note these things. So it's not that anybody's trying to pull something over on us or to change the meaning, but they're just these kind of inclusions or omissions that were sometimes passed along. And there are things that we as Christians, we understand that these are there. Some of these require a little more wrestling with than others, but, but there, it's just to say there are these textual variants within the manuscripts of the New Testament. But since we have 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, more or less, you know, it's a huge number of manuscripts, and there is great agreement within them. Amen? I mean, it's, it's really a miraculous thing almost that there's such agreement within these many, many manuscripts. And, and the variants, we know they're not malicious, Right? These were not intended to undermine the deity of Christ or anything like that. The, the story is conveyed forth through these many manuscripts. And so that's really all I'm going to say about textual criticism this morning, but I think it is worth noting. And if you want to know more about that, if that's like a topic that you know, really revs your engine, we've got a New Testament scholar in our church, Nate, who teaches Sunday school, and you, know, you could let him know, hey, teach us a class on that or something. I think it's probably not worth going into it in more detail right now, but, but if you're interested, we certainly have some very wise people in the church who could speak more about that. Now, as I mentioned last week, um, I mentioned that these final 12 verses of Mark's gospel, the longer ending, as it's sometimes called, my perspective on these verses is that they are probably not original to the, 
to, to Mark's gospel, that they were probably a later addition to Mark's gospel. Um, and, and I'll give you a few reasons for that before we get into the text directly. And, and I'll also just note, you don't have to agree with me on that. And that's okay, right? We can, uh, we can have different perspectives on that and we can still be brothers and sisters in fellowship together. This is not a, a salvation issue. So if you take a different perspective, that's okay. Um, we're gonna just look at a couple of the conclusions I've come to on why I think this is a later edition, and then we'll get into the text directly. Um, first, a couple of external issues stand out to me. The two oldest manuscripts we have of the New Testament, they're called, one's called Vaticanus and one is called Sinaiticus, and they do not include these 12 verses. So that's one of the, the pieces of evidence for me that makes me think this was a later, a later edition. Also, some of the early translations of the earliest manuscripts into other language out of the Greek, into Latin and into Syriac, do not include these 12 verses. Finally, the church fathers are silent on this. Church fathers such as Clement of Alexandria or Origen seem to have known nothing about these additional verses in Mark chapter 16. So to me, that that makes me think maybe this is a later edition. Having said that, it's worth noting that these these 12 verses were not like added hundreds of years later. They're not some new edition. There are early attestations of these verses as early as the second century. So it's worth noting that. And you might say, hey, well, that's a good reason maybe to say these, these are original to Mark. But, um, you know, just to, just to note that. All of this to me just suggests that there is an uncertain past to these 12 verses, the longer ending of Mark's gospel. So those are the external issues. The, the internal issues that raise some questions for me um, for example, come from the Greek vocabulary and the style of these verses that are written. It seems a little different than the, the body of Mark's gospel and kind of suggests to me that maybe these were a later edition. Um, we noted last week that Mark 16, 1 through 8, which is the story of the resurrection and is called the shorter ending of Mark's gospel, that if you remember, it ends very abruptly, Right? It ends with the women running from the tomb, and they're both amazed and afraid, and, that, and that's where the curtain falls. And it's this very abrupt kind of cliffhanger ending, and, and on account that we as human beings don't often like cliffhanger endings, right? We want the story to be kind of wrapped up. It seems like this was kind of a, uh, a way to wrap up the story, to add these 12 verses on that just sort of summarize the end of the story and bring some conclusion to Mark's gospel. Um, one thing that stands out to me that's a little different, for example, is there's an introduction to Mary Magdalene here, right? Mary Magdalene and then this introduction, like she's the one who had seven demons that Jesus exercised from her. And it's strange to me, Mary Magdalene's already been mentioned three times in Mark's gospel. So it seems a little strange to me that then she's introduced almost as if it's the first time we're hearing about her, sort of with this sort of story about her given here. So to me, that feels like a later source. Now, there are some notable preachers, uh, preachers I respect. And when they preach Mark's gospel, they get to Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And right there they end. That is the end of the story. They don't even say anything about verses 9 through 20. And so that's another perspective on these. Um, they would not agree, like, let's not even 
Let's not even dignify these verses by preaching for a Sunday on them, right? That's one approach to this, and that's fine. But I believe it's pastor, you know, pastorally, I think it's worth taking a Sunday to just look at this. It's, it's, in, it's in our Bible with that note. We've been working through Mark, so we're just going to go all the way to the longer ending. I think it's worth noting these. And it's also worth noting that, that in no way do these verses change the gospel, Do they change anything about what we know about Jesus Christ? Whether your Bible has that note in it or it doesn't, it doesn't change your Bible, right? It doesn't change the gospel at all. So that's all I'm going to say about the uncertain origin of these 12 verses. Now we're going to take some time to just unpack what they say for us today. So there's verses 9 through 20 they kind of logically break up into three sections, if you want to look at that. They, they break up into Jesus' post-resurrection appearances in verses 9 through 14. The second section is about the Great Commission, and that's in verses 15 through 18. And then the final part that we see today is about the ascension of Christ from earth into heaven, and that's in verses 19 and 20. So it kind of breaks up that way. We'll take a look at all of those today. First is the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, verses 9 through 14. So um, last week we saw in chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, we we saw the, the reality of the empty tomb, right? And we saw this astonishing account where Mary and the other women went to the tomb, they find it empty, and then we saw this, this wonderful character of Jesus. It was related by the angel to the women, but this wonderful heart of Jesus towards the disciples and towards Peter in particular, right? So the women went to the tomb. They were filled with glory and fear as they found not the body of Jesus, but they found an angel in the tomb. And, and at that point, uh, up through verse 8, no one has seen the risen Christ, right? We've just, we've just seen that the tomb was empty, And then in these verses, verses 9 through 14, we've got three different encounters with the risen Christ. And all of them have this undertone of the unbelief of the 11 disciples. So so who does Jesus appear to first in the resurrection story? He He appears to Mary, right? He appears to a woman, Mary Magdalene. Now you think about that. Mary was the first person to see the empty tomb. Mary was perhaps the last person to see the cross, to see Jesus buried, to be there where he was buried. And now she's the first person to see the empty tomb. And now, according to these verses, she has completed her mission of telling the others that Jesus has risen. That's the mandate the angel gave to her. And uh, so she's the first to see him risen. And then she, she completes her mission of telling the others this news. And that's consistent with what we find in John chapter 20. In fact, I think these verses are maybe a little summary of what we find in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we see Peter and John, they run to the tomb John tells us they look into the empty tomb, they see the linens lying there where Jesus' body was, and and then he says that they had this little bit of understanding that about about the scriptures that said he he must rise from the dead. 
And so something clicks a little bit with Peter and John there. But, but I, I think, you know, with Peter and John and the other disciples, we see a little bit of our own experience of faith, like they have these little glimmers of faith. They have these little light bulb moments of understanding. And then they also, those moments also give way to the lows of unbelief. And we have that too in our own lives, don't we? Those moments we really feel like we're getting it and we're understanding. And then those moments where maybe we just feel like, I, I don't know, and I'm kind of struggling in my faith. So John, in, in chapter 20, John tells us Peter and John, they've gone to the tomb, they've seen it empty, they've seen the claws there, and then they went away, they each went to their own home. And then Mary Magdalene, she lingers behind at the tomb. And John tells us she's, she's weeping, and then in John 20, verse 11, it says she stood outside the tomb, she's weeping, she then stoops down, and she looks into the tomb. And as she looks in there, she sees two angels. They're dressed in white, one sitting at the, where Jesus' head would have been, one sitting where Jesus' feet would have been. And then they say to her, woman, why are you crying? And she says to them, because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've lain him. And so it seems like Mary's already had this, in, this encounter, but perhaps that initial joy of the angel's message has now begun to dwindle right? She hasn't actually seen the risen Jesus. And so she's kind of going into this, this moment of she's not sure what she believes here, and she's still mourning his death. And then continuing on in John 20, it says, after she encounters these angels, she stands up and she turns around, and it says, Jesus was standing there. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. He was somehow con concealing himself from her. And he, he says to her, again, woman, why are you weeping? Very caught up on her weeping here. And uh, then he says, who are you seeking? And, and she supposed him to be the gardener there. And she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him. And then in John chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus says to her, he says, Mary. He says her name. And as he speaks her name, she understands this is the risen Lord. And she responds to him, Rabboni, which means teacher, right? And she sees, she's the first to see and understand the risen Jesus. So she recognized his voice saying her name. And I think once again, this is a, a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of the grace and mercy of Jesus. First, in, in Mark's gospel, last week we saw the grace and mercy of Jesus extended to the disciples who had failed him and to Peter. And he says, tell them, the angel says, tell them to go to Galilee. Jesus will meet them there, right? He still wants to be with his disciples who have failed him. And then here too, with Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had been a sinful woman, she had been possessed by seven demons, and, and this, this sinful woman had been redeemed by Christ, forgiven by Christ, given life by Christ, set free from the bondage of sin. And it's this woman who's the first to see the risen Lord Jesus. It's wonderful. And it should be an encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, an encouragement because every one of us has a past too right? Every one of us has something from our past maybe we don't really want to talk about or tell anyone about. We have things we've done, and even so, Jesus is the one who meets sinners such as we are and redeems us. It's wonderful, wonderful good news.
And what's amazing is, is this, in verse 11, it says, the disciples were, were huddling and they were fearful, and then they hear that Jesus is alive. Mary tells them, Jesus is alive. But what's their response? Well, their response is that they did not believe, right? It kind of boggles my mind, really. They didn't believe. And John says that all of a sudden, you know, that Peter and, Peter and John had had this little light bulb moment that Jesus had risen from the dead, but still they don't believe what Mary tells them. And I wonder if it's because they don't believe her because they think, well, this is a woman and she's very emotional right now and we just can't trust what she's saying. Maybe it's that. Maybe it was a pride issue of why they didn't believe because they, they might have thought, well, if Jesus really has risen from the dead, certainly he would come to us first, right? We're the disciples. He wouldn't have gone to Mary first. So maybe it was a pride issue that kept them from believing. But it's very telling. The, the gospel accounts, they continue over again to exalt these women, to exalt Mary, right? But you can kind of imagine Mary. I mean, poor Mary. She must have been so frustrated. Nobody believed her, right? She had seen the risen Lord. Nobody would believe her. And then we have another account here in, in Mark 16, verses 12 and 13. We have this account where it says, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they walked along the road out in the countryside. So this is surely a summary of Luke chapter 24, if you're familiar with the, the story or the account of the road to Emmaus, where you know, some, some of these disciples were walking out of the city to a place called Emmaus, and along the way, Jesus was walking with them, but he kind of kept his identity hidden from them. And it was only when they arrived to their destination and they invited him to stay with them, and then they were at table together, and in the breaking of bread, they then recognized him, and they saw that it was the risen Lord who was with them, right? So, so certainly this must be referring to Luke 24, and verse 13 says these men, like they realize it's Jesus they were with, and then they run back to tell the other disciples, right, to tell them. But again, the disciples don't believe them. So they encounter the risen Lord Jesus, they go to tell the 11, and the 11 don't believe them. That's if you're, if, you're, if you're keeping track, that's strike two against the disciples, unbelieving. Then verse 14, Jesus himself comes to the disciples. It says, later he appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and for their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. <clears throat> so there's some significant and profound lessons in this rebuke of Jesus to the unbelieving disciples. Let me say this. I know some people. I know some people, I would put them in the category of conspiracy theorists, right? I'm not saying it's any of you. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. But I know some people, right? I'd put them in the category of conspiracy theorists, right? If someone has kind of a weird or out there idea, I mean, they are on it right? They're going to take it hook, line, and sinker the whole way. Now, I also know some people, I also know some people who do not believe things 
that they should believe, right? Maybe you know people like this, people that'll believe anything and people who should believe and won't, right? And it is not a virtue to be gullible and to just believe anything and everything. And it's also not a virtue to, to resist believing in anything. And oftentimes, we tend to have these arbitrary standards in our own lives, right? Like, we'll believe certain things in certain areas of our life, but maybe we won't believe them in other areas of our life. We can be sort of arbitrary like that. So notice something significant here. Jesus does not come to the 11 disciples, and he doesn't say, well, guys, who could blame you, right? It was a woman who told you. He doesn't say that, right? No. Rather, he rebukes them for not believing this woman who had come and told them about his resurrection, right? He rebuked them. And and in other words, another way to put that is that they were culpable, right? They were guilty of their unbelief. Didn't matter who had told them. And that's, that's important for us to understand in our own spiritual journey, right? Sometimes, sometimes we modern folk, right? Sometimes we think, well, you know, if we have doubts about something in the scriptures, we say, well, we're very modern, right? We have a lot of science these days, right? We're very enlightened, sophisticated people. So, you know, if, if we have doubts about things in the Bible, well, that, it's on account of that, right? Those Bible people, they were kind of bumpkins, right? What did they know? But I would say no. That's not really the case. Because here, you notice the, these guys in the Bible, they're not believing, right? They're not gullible, right? In their time, just as it is in our time, it was not normal for someone who died to then come out of the grave alive, right? Not normal in our time. That was not normal in their time. They did not believe that, right? Or sometimes, sometimes people today will say, well, I don't believe what's in the Bible because, well, that's an outdated text, right? This is really old, right? Maybe we have more up-to-date things today that would be easier for me to believe, right? How can we trust these ancient texts? Well, let me challenge you on that. If we treated all other ancient documents the way we treat, you know, sometimes we'll treat the Bible, then we literally would have to confess that we can know nothing about the ancient world, right? We have over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. That is incredible. For example, you think of other ancient texts. Let's use uh, Homer as an example, right? You, you pick up Homer, read Homer. Well, we don't say, well, we can't really know what Homer, you know, whether this is right or not. Uh, we only have a few manuscripts of Homer. We have 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. And they may have some minor variants within them, but they all tell the same story about the same Jesus Christ, about his life, about his ministry, about his mission, about his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, his resurrection from the dead. These are historical facts in the New Testament. 
The New Testament bears, bears witness that many people saw the risen Lord Jesus. Many people saw him, right? Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus at one time, the, the risen Lord Jesus appeared at one time to over 500 people. It gives great veracity to the story. And so today, I would contend, if we don't believe the resurrection or if we don't believe what the Bible is saying here, that is a spiritual problem. That is not a historical problem. That is a spiritual problem. It's an issue of I don't want to believe rather than if there's sufficient truth to believe. If Christ is who he said he is, and if he did what he said he did, then brothers and sisters, what can we do but submit to him? For indeed, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But these genuine disciples right there in the text, they doubt this story, right? They struggle to believe the witnesses that Jesus is alive, right? And I think in a way, to me, that makes the story more believable, right? You hear me? It makes it more believable in a way. I think if they had all just believed like that, it would have seemed like, you know, it was kind of like contrived. They had all agreed, we're gonna, we're gonna go with this story. This is our story, right? But they don't believe, they struggle to believe. And I think it actually strengthens the validity of their later testimony and passion about the risen Lord Jesus. Because, you know, we see in verse 10, they are weeping and mourning because they really believe Jesus is dead and that's it. The movement is over, right? But as they are converted from their unbelief to a, to a point of believing in the risen Christ and the resurrection, they become passionate to share the good news. And they preach in such a bold way that they begin to turn the entire world upside down, right? I think that strengthens the story. I really think it strengthens the story, right? So that's the first thing we see about the resurrection from Mark 9 through 16 are these post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. That's the, the three of them. The second thing in this text, the second section is about the Great Commission. So we usually think about the Great Commission from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 28. But, but here's kind of like a, a little mini version of the Great Commission. Jesus says to them, so he appears to the disciples, rebukes them, and then he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now up to this point, if you remember, Jesus has not told them to do this. Right? There are quite a few places in Mark's gospel where, where a sign or wonder or teaching is, is performed, and then Jesus tells people, hey, you know, don't tell anybody about this. Right? He's not wanting to reveal his identity as the Son of God through parts of Mark's gospel. And, and then there, there's, a, there's a point where he sends the disciples out on a mission trip. And when they go on their mission, he sends them and specifically says that they're to go to the house of Israel right? So he gives them a limited scope in their mission here. But now, after the resurrection, all of that changes, right? And now, instead of only going to the house of Israel, he is saying, go to all of creation. All of creation needs to hear the gospel. That's the, the great commission, right? All of creation needs to hear about the cross, and all of creation needs to hear about the empty tomb, and that the Great Commission, it implies that 
every single culture, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people needs Christ, needs to hear the gospel, right? He doesn't say, well, if a certain people group already have like a particular idol worship or a particular religious system, well, don't worry about them. No, he says, go to all of creation, right? Everyone needs to hear the gospel. Everyone needs Jesus, right? So he sends them in that way. And that's an incredible, great commission. And it turns out this way, y'all. The great commission is not only given to the 11 disciples here in Mark chapter 16, right? You don't get to go, whew, okay, dodge that one. No, the great commission is given to all of us. It's given to the entire church to go and to share the good news to all of creation, right? Doesn't say, oh, go only preach it to the elect or go only preach it to these people and not those people. No, it says go indiscriminately and preach the gospel to all of creation. And then watch, watch as Christ builds his church. And then verse 16, it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever doesn't believe will be condemned. So we talked some about this last week, that this is the rest of the story, right? People believe, and then the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in them. They believe, and they are saved, and they are baptized, right? And then they, they are identified with the family of faith, with the body of Christ. But he, but he also says, whoever does not believe is condemned. And so that's a sobering statement, but a true statement. And it, and it speaks to the urgency of the mission, right? Because those who don't believe, they will be condemned, right? That, I mean, that's what's motivated some of you. Some of you have come on mission and you've been motivated because of the urgency of the, the mandate to share the gospel to all of creation because there is an urgency. Heaven is real, but hell is also real. And so make the most of every day. Live every day like it counts, right? Not, not, not a one of us is promised tomorrow. There's an urgency. In verse 17 and 18, these are a little more um, challenging portions of this passage. It says, signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up, it's a little icky, pick up snakes with their hands. They will not drink, or they will drink poison, will not be hurt at all, or place their hands on sick people, will get well. Um, so all of these, with the exception of the drinking poison and not getting sick, we see in the, the book of Acts, they're all very consistent with the, with the wider uh, witness of Scripture. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into detail on those verses, but simply to say, without hesitation, that we as Christians believe in the miraculous, right? We believe in the miraculous. If you believe the Bible, you believe in miracles, amen, right? We, we don't have to be ashamed of that. But at the same time, I think it's okay to say that, you know, it's okay to believe that the ex extraordinary is not the norm, right? If it was the norm, then it would just be the ordinary, Right, so the extraordinary signs and wonders are not the norm. Verse 20 says, when the disciples then went out, they preached everywhere. The Lord 
worked with them and confirmed his words by these signs that accompanied them. So as the word went forth, the signs confirmed the word going forth. But it seems like as the word, as the church is established, then, then maybe, maybe the confirmation doesn't have to continue to happen. And so, so, th- so there's some significant things here. Uh, I think it's also in line with scripture. Let me just say this. I, you know, it's not the signs. It's not the miracles that save. It is the gospel that saves. Right? Signs and wonders can be con- confirming of the gospel, confirming of the word, but ultimately we need the gospel. The gospel is what saves. You think about the Great Commission. The Great Commission doesn't say, go out and perform miracles. It says, go out, you know, preach the gospel to all of creation. I think sometimes sometimes believers can get very caught up in wanting to experience the supernatural. And maybe there's nothing wrong in that in itself, but sometimes we can get so caught up in that that maybe we miss the gospel, right? Romans 1.16 says it very clearly. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, all right? So let's not get so caught up in chasing miracles that we miss the gospel. That's, that's the heart. That's the heart of it. And, and, you know, let's not lose sight of the sinfulness of sin. Let's not lose sight of our great and desperate need for a redeemer, right? It is a miracle in itself that God can take a spiritually dead person and raise them to spiritual life, amen? That is a miracle we witness in itself. Let's not lose sight of that. So that's the first two sections. Resurrection, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and then we have the Great Commission and that mandate that we are all given. And finally, we have the ascension in verse 19. It says, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. That's amazing. And you think about as you read the New Testament, as you read the the different gospel accounts, it begins with the incarnation with God taking on human flesh, becoming a man. Jesus was fully God, fully man. And then we think about all of the the ministry of Jesus, his life, his ministry, the the wonders, the signs, the teaching that he did. Uh, Eventually we've seen in Mark's gospel, we've seen his suffering, we've seen his death, his burial, now his glorious resurrection. And now... It says, well, then he is taken up into heaven. And it's almost as if you get this feeling as if heaven is eager to receive her king, right? The father is eager to bestow the reward on his son as the the hymn says, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. That's what's described here. And so Jesus is received up into heaven. He sits at the right, or he sits down at the right hand of God. That's significant. He sits down. The reason for that is he sits down because it is finished, right? His work is done. As Psalm 110 promises, he now rests until the Father makes all of his enemies a footstool under his feet. Yet his reign in heaven 
is not where the story ends. There will come a day when the father tells the son, right, to make a final and second return to this earth. There will come that day. And then the words of Philippians 2 will be fulfilled that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, one day, the one who ascends, this Jesus, our King of kings and Lord of lords, you know, one, one day will return. And any unbelief in him, any rejection of him will not change the fact that indeed he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Just because you don't believe that will not change that fact. And there's a day coming that will be undeniable. The Bible, the Bible says that a, a fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? But there is a day coming when we will learn that atheism is only a temporary condition. Because on that day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some will confess with joy. Others will confess with agony. But every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now in this present time, this time in which we live, King Jesus has extended a period of amnesty, right? He has told all the rebels, rebels such as we are, you know, during this time you can lay down your arms and you will be received. You can be received as sons and daughters of the king, right? Receive his promises. But there will come a time when he returns, that that period of amnesty will end. And all of those who have rejected him will find judgment, right? And all of those who have believed on him will be received home. And so as we come to the end, that's the third section of these last verses of Mark's gospel, right? His ascension and his ultimate return, as we, as we bring this to a close, I think the urgent message, brothers and sisters, is to flee to Jesus. Flee to him now. For any who may be unbelieving, flee to him now and be saved. He's extended the spirit of amnesty. Lay down your arms of rebellion. Trust on Jesus. Be received as sons and daughters of the King. So, that's the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. And that's all. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us in these things. What glorious truths these are that we have received as your church. We thank you for your grace extended to sinners. 
Lord, as Jesus rose early on that Sunday morning going to meet needy disciples, faithless disciples, Lord, we, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for the great commission to which we have all been called to go and tell the nations that Jesus reigns and that Jesus saves and that he offers his peace and his mercy to all who would believe and receive him and call on his name in faith. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning, and we thank you for the confidence we have that Jesus reigns at your right hand. And we trust in him as the the pilot of history and the head of the church, the lamb who was slain and the lion of Judah. And we bow our hearts to him now. And I pray that every single one of us now would pledge our allegiance to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.